Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are covering The Gunslinger. Only the first chapter, though, if you're... If you have a copy of the uh, the whole novel, which was republished a bunch of times as part of the Dark Tower series. So we're only doing the first section of that novel, the really novella called The Gunslinger. Right. The, the Gunslinger is the first novel of the Dark Tower series, which is a thing that is central to Stephen King's work. But this first novel was... Originally published, actually, as five separate short stories. Uh, this was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction over a period of, of three years, from 1978 until 1981. And uh, so that's why we are covering just the first chapter, right? Because this was originally published as a standalone story. And also, on top of that, we have made sure to read this in an edition of the book uh, that was published prior to the revision of 2003, where King did some retconning to bring the story in line with stuff that he, he thought up in the, the, the later books. Uh, we have also compared this to the original magazine publication, which is available online. Uh, we'll talk about that stuff in, uh, in two more episodes, I guess, when we do our discussion. Uh, a couple more things to say about this episode before we uh, dive into it is that this was nominated by a Patreon supporter, and I think this was a very cool idea to do. Uh, we'll talk about whether we want to continue doing this or not uh, when we get to the discussion episode as well. And that is going to be two episodes from now, because we are going to do three episodes on this story. This episode is going to recap up through chapter eight, and then the next episode is going to finish the the recap, these uh, these Roman numeral sections within the, the story or within the first chapter of the Dark Tower, colon, the Gunslinger, if that's what you've got, and then we'll have a discussion episode. And then finally, before we actually uh, get into it, uh, I just want to remind people that our social media contest, our social media sharing contest is still going for 10 more days. So you've got 10 more days to uh, tell people in your online communities about us, retweet us, and so on. Uh, and I will say that we would love to have some participation from King fandom in you know elder sign as a whole uh these episodes and and also graveyard shift which we did earlier this year uh we'd love to be hearing from people who are real uh, you know big in the king fandom so if you know people like that or you are uh, a member of uh, i don't know a stephen king facebook group or a reddit group or something like that we would love for you to uh, let them know about us yeah it helps us out so much we really do want to focus uh, on getting the word out on clay temple media this year it's a big focus and plan for our whole podcast network. And we're so grateful to all of our listeners, to everybody who is in our audience, who has told other people about us. Thank you so much, whether it's social media, word of mouth. Uh, we are so grateful for your contributions to getting the word out on Clay Temple Media's podcasts like Elder Sign and the Gene Wolf Literary Podcasts. Those are the two I co-host. Um, I want to talk a little bit about my history with The Dark Tower before we jump into this. This has to be my fifth time reading this book, uh, and it's fascinating. I don't think I've picked it picked up The Dark Tower in, in maybe three or four years, and it was really great to revisit this in the context of what we've been doing on Elder Sign. It's looking at this as like a, a weird fiction story, looking at this as a horror story. Looking at this in the tradition and scope of the stuff that we've covered, it's super cool. This was also really nostalgic for me to reread. I discovered these books uh, when I was 16 or 17 years old and uh, had them with me when I was out of basic training at my first duty station. And a good friend of mine, and I, uh, he was in my platoon, he and I went through and read 
all of these books as they were coming out. They were all coming out. The fifth, sixth, and seventh book were all coming out in this two-year span that I was uh, stationed at Fort Huachuca. And he and I just devoured them and hung out and talked about them and used the strange high speech language to refer to stuff in Army, which I'm sure just <laughs> irritated everybody around us. Uh, we were kids. What can you say? This was really fun to reread, and I'm excited to to talk about it and kind of having taken off the nostalgia shades and look at this as a standalone novella. I can't wait to examine what King is doing with this and maybe maybe have a few nitpicks or or qualms with uh, some storytelling decisions as well. Cannot wait to go through this story. So, Glenn, why don't you just get us going? The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. And that's it. That's the that's the opening line. That's the, the opening paragraph of The Gunslinger. And to me, at least, this line is iconic. Uh, cracking this book open again for the first time for me, it's been 15 years. So, so cracking this book open again for the first time in 15 years, I have to say that this opening line just thrilled me. I also think it's an absolutely brilliant way to open a story. We don't need to know character names. We don't need to know any character motivations. We just need to know that there are two characters and what actions they are taking. Uh, but it's also a bold choice to begin your story this way. So Brandon, I just off the bat was wondering how this line worked for you. That's hilarious that you said that this is iconic. This is my note on this line. The opening line of this novel has become iconic. It is such <laughs> a good hook. It's the one of the best hooks in all of kind of uh, popular literature, I think. And when I first came across it, you know, when I was 16 or 17, I, I couldn't wait to continue with this whole series. And yes, opening it up again now at this point, after, you know, having read this a couple times, uh, having had some years between the last time I read it and now, I just was filled with with joy. Uh, and I'd forgotten actually a lot of what happens in this novella. Uh, but this opening line always, always thrills me and just sucks me into the story immediately. It's brilliant. Yeah, there is no nonsense. And I think one of the things that I would say about this line is that this is how you begin short fiction. It's not necessarily how you begin a novel. And I think this is one of the one of the places where you can see that this was originally conceived of, in some sense at least, as a self-contained story, or at least a story that not necessarily is isolated. I think King went to this already with uh, having some vision of there being a larger story around this, but that this episode could be read on its own, that it could be isolated, because this is the sort of hook you use when you when you've got a limit on on word count, if you're trying to make a sale to a magazine. Well, uh, well, let's get some more. Let's get beyond this first sentence. We'll actually do the entirety of chapter one now here before we uh, pause again, though chapter one is a, is a pretty long chapter here. So we're in a desert and uh, King does a great job of describing this desert. So let's just uh, let's just read a little more, though. I promise I will not just uh, just quote the entire text <laughs> the whole way through. The desert was the apotheosis of all deserts. Huge standing to the sky for what might have been parsecs in all directions, white, blinding, waterless, without features save for the faint, cloudy haze of the mountains which sketched themselves on the horizon, and the devil grass which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, death. An occasional tombstone sign pointed the way, for once the drifted track that cut its way through the thick crust of alkali had been a highway, and coaches had followed it. The world had moved on since then. The world had emptied. 
So there's a lot going on in that paragraph. We're going to want to unpack that, I'm sure. But uh, I want to make sure that we notice the use of the word parsec here. Also, the the heavy emphasis on death and also the fact that this place, wherever it is, does have a history. Change happens in this place. And the rest of the chapter continues this setup. We've got uh, the core premise of the story. One man is chasing another. We've got the setting. It's a desert. But now we need to learn a little bit more about our protagonist, the gunslinger, whose name we are not going to learn, at least not here. And uh, King gives us a description of him. It's a pretty great description, pretty thick description of a cowboy, straight out of a Western, really. And when we pair that with the use of coaches in the description of the, the desert, it seems clear that this is a Western. Except, of course, that's going to become completely unclear again pretty quickly. And one of the bits of information we get here concerns the kef, which is an italicized word spelled K-H-E-F. King does not define this made-up word for us, but it seems to be a type of of training, uh, something you can attain levels of, you can attain levels in the kef. Uh, The gunslinger is only at level 5, which uh, leaves him at a disadvantage. If he were at level 7 or level 8, he could go without water in the desert. But because he's only level 5, he's thirsty. I read this bit about the Kef a little differently, that it was like stages of insane dehydration. Uh, It is a a term that's part of King's idea of high speech, the the kind of made-up language he he has in this series. Uh, But my sense of the Kef was a little different from yours. Not that it's like a a training you can go through, but that it's uh, a kind of advanced stages of dehydration that they've named uh, that these whatever civilization the gunslinger has come from has named uh, due to like limited or lack of resources. But I think it works on either level. Yeah, I definitely took this as being a kind of like Jedi type of ability, right? That this is a, or, you know, some kind of martial art that you are trained. You have this sort of mystical control over your, your body. Uh, so that's interesting. Yeah, we can kick that one to, uh, to listeners and see how they, how they read that as well. And I don't know, maybe we'll come back to that in the discussion as well once we've got some, some more information here. But so at this point, we, we know that the gunslinger is pursuing the man in black and he's on what is a pretty clear trail. Uh, There are campsites that he comes across where the man in black has made a fire by burning devil grass. We get a really cool note about this as well. The the locals, who are called uh, border dwellers, uh, they claim that devils live in the grass and even in the flames if you burn it. And if you look into the light of this burning devil grass, the devils will hypnotize you and, and draw you in. Something that is strange about the campfires he finds, though, and and, and by the way, he's been doing this for for two months. Uh, Something that is strange is that he never finds any waste of any kind. It's not clear that the man in black is eating or or drinking. And as the day winds down, the, the gunslinger makes a camp of his own. And when there is no sign of smoke on the horizon, he recognizes that he must be out of range of the man in black. And so he finally builds his own fire. And we get another really awesome description here that I, I think is just worth reading because it brings home the imagery and the motifs that King is working with in this story. And it also offers some great bit of world building. Above, the stars were unwinking, also constant. Suns and worlds by the million. And so that's it. That's the end of the first chapter. There's a lot to talk about, but actually, Brandon, I think maybe we should start with Eat at Joe's. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was not really going to bring up the uh, obvious references to our own world. King's own sense of nostalgia for the, like, you know, the 1960s and the 1950s, which is really prevalent in his fiction. Uh, but yeah, this is the first reference we get in this story when the gunslinger is thinking about 
whether or not the man in black is leaving messages, you know, coded messages, ideograms in the layout of his fires that the gunslinger comes across. So we get the sense that the gunslinger is pursuing the man in black and the man in black is kind of taking pleasure in being pursued and is maybe leaving messages that the gunslinger can't decode for the gunslinger. So uh, this reference we get here is to Edith Joe's. I'm going to point out the other cultural references as I'm sure you will later, but it does leave us with a sense of, is this our world? Is this some dark apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic version of our own world? And uh, I think that's something we're going to have to contend with when we get to the discussion. Right, because it is never going to be explained. King is not going to explain that here, certainly, in this first bit. And and to me, that's a real strength of this story, though I imagine that we will be talking about craft in the discussion as well, and that can be one of the things that we uh, uh, really assess there. There are a few things I want to point out, especially uh, in relation to this idea of this image of the cowboy straight out of a Western. Uh, We get this idea that the gunslinger himself has this sense of romanticism. He thinks that his stage of the kef that he's in, uh, his kind of stoic detachment from the breaking down of his body is a kind of romantic idea that that he is a romantic hero. He has this odd self-meta-knowledge of himself, and it's an idea that really carries through the novella. So we'll talk about the senses of, of romantic or romanticism that King is thinking about in creating this character in The Gunslinger, and whether he's upholding kind of classic ideas of this or really subverting them. The Gunslinger doesn't have a name in the first novella, though we do find out that the Gunslinger's name is Roland and that a major influence for the Dark Tower series uh, and the Gunslinger in particular is Robert Browning's poem, Child Roland to the Dark Tower, came. And King got the idea for these characters or like the images flashed in his head with the opening lines, which the opening lines are my first thought was he lied in every word that hoary cripple with malicious eye, a sconce to watch the working of his lie on mine and mouth scarce able to afford suppression of the glee that pursed and scored its edge at one more victim gained thereby. Uh, and that poem continues on. It's a, it's an, it's a chivalric romance poem. And it's a, basically a kind of evil wizard villain type guy and Roland, uh, a knight. So these are the ideas that King has in mind as he's working out the character of the story. And I think as we continue to progress through this novella, we'll see that King is working out who the gunslinger is. And, and this is really uh, strikes me as, as some discovery writing. You mentioned, Glenn, that there's this word parsec that's used here. It feels very out of place in a Western. It's almost like Star Wars-y in terms of it being a space Western, but it's clearly our world. At the end of this chapter, we have this sense of cosmic horror uh, that the gunslinger's not thinking about, but the narrator is, about the universe's indifference to humanity's actions, how this also is a romantic idea. And then we have the man in black who is this imp- epitome of inhumanity. You you pointed out, Glenn, that he doesn't 
really use the bathroom or there's no evidence of him using the bathroom or needing water or anything like that. Uh, he seems to be able to live without needing to meet his biological needs. So the man in black is either superhuman or subhuman. And the conflict then that we have set up in this first chapter so well is the kind of man versus man or, or Superman and man versus nature. And both are really high stakes for the gunslinger, but we don't really know what the stakes are between the gunslinger and the man in black. I, I love the opening chapter of this story. It's really surreal uh, in the in the best possible sense. Yeah, that's a great observation that this, as we're getting it here in this first chapter, this is a story about man versus nature. The the stuff about man versus man or, or man versus potential Superman, as you put it, is really just the, the backstory to what is actually happening, right? The scene, the action that is transpiring in the present of the page is the man versus nature. And it's the past of what's on the page and the future, I suppose as well is the man versus man or man versus Superman stuff. That's actually a really brilliant artifice on King's part, right? This is a great way to build the, the sort of two tones that your story is going to, going to take and to, to weave them together. It lets us get inside our character's head, even if we don't actually know his name or any of the particulars about why anything is going on, right? We still get this sort of introspective sense to this story uh, and and also helps, I think, hammer home the, the sense of his isolation out in the desert, which is also quite brilliant. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really great touch to kind of smuggle in the man versus nature aspect of this story to drive the stakes and urgency of the storytelling um, by couching it in a man versus man conflict. And you're right to point out, Glenn, that this is a really brilliant touch on King's part. And I think that this conflict is prevalent throughout all of the story, throughout all of the novels of the Dark Tower series. And it could be said that the weakest novel, which is the sixth one, in my opinion, and maybe many others, is so weak because it, it maybe doesn't have that sense of urgency of, of man versus nature of needing to complete your task before the world ends essentially or before you're killed by the uncaring environment or uncaring universe uh and it's more of a, a weird supernatural conflict so uh this is a, a hallmark of the series as well well you have probably just incensed uh, one seventh of dark tower fans right the, I, I don't the think one seventh so. of the... <laughs> all right well we would love to hear from you uh, or just in general we'd love to hear which which book listeners think is the, the weakest book of the dark tower which is the strongest as well uh, we'd love to have that conversation well let's uh, let's get into chapter two here which is uh, another long one and uh, one thing that's clear in this chapter is that we, we aren't quite in the full-on desert yet we're, we're in some foothills that are a, a kind of transitional zone between uh, some kind of plains I guess and the the desert the the, the border and uh, we're gonna meet one of these border dwellers now these border dwellers live in sod huts. Uh, they're usually madmen or lepers. Uh, the last one the gunslinger talked to gave him a silver compass and asked him to give it to Jesus if he finds him. So, uh, uh, again, some strange world-building juxtapositions there. But the border dweller that we meet in this chapter, a man named Brown, uh, doesn't seem to be either a madman or a leper. 
He's a surprisingly young man who's busy tending to his crop of corn, and as the gunslinger approaches, he spits onto the soil and says, life for your crop, and then receives the response, life for your own. Uh, This is a world-building touch that I I quite liked here. And uh, Brown is happy to host the gunslinger for the night, and he'll share his corn for free, but he's going to have to charge for the beans because he himself has to buy those from a man who comes around sometimes. Uh, And again, I just love this detail. It's a lot about beans in this story. Uh, Brown also has a pet raven named Zoltan. Uh, Zoltan talks, or at least mimics speech, but all he says is, screw you and the horse you rode in on, and beans, beans, the musical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. Uh, And uh, Brown says that he did try to teach Zoltan the Lord's Prayer once, but uh, this ain't Lord's Prayer country. Uh, But down to business now. The, The gunslinger is looking for the man in black. Uh, The man in black was here. He stayed for supper. Uh, That was definitely more than two weeks ago and definitely less than two months. But other than that, Brown can't really be sure. Uh, The bean man's been twice since then, so maybe it's been six weeks. And uh, Brown here guesses that the the man in black is a sorcerer, and the gunslinger confirms this. So, you know, what kind of Western is this, is what I'm asking at this point. Uh, And there's a bit of tension as the gunslinger goes out back to the well to refill his water skins, and he's wondering if he's going to be attacked, if this isn't all some kind of... Of, uh, some kind of ambush, but it's not. He's, he's not attacked. The, they settle in to cook dinner, and while the beans are cooking, the, the gunslinger relaxes, and he thinks about the journey ahead of him into the desert, and the journey he's just made, and how close he is to catching the man in black, finally. And so we get some bit of backstory, and what we learn is that it's been three weeks since the gunslinger was in the village or the, the, the town of Tall, uh, and that was the last village on his path. And he thinks of his time there as the horror at Tall, and uh, we'll find out about that later. But we also learned that the man in black had healed an old man dying with the the weed, whatever that means. Uh, And all of this, I have to say, is a great page-turning trick, right? King is setting us up to ask, to be really begging to know what is the horror at Tall, uh, besides a great title for uh, some other Lovecraftian story. It is fantastic. And and we also learned that this old man who was dying was only 35. So we're in this world where people don't live very long and everybody's aging up and aging out of life. And this idea that we get right at the end of chapter two, that the desert would be hell uh, is, can be kind of paired with what we get at the end of chapter three, which is only a few paragraphs. And the gunslinger asks if Brown, the, the man that the gunslinger's, with right now believes in the afterlife and brown says i think this is it so we get this sense of of people living in this maybe post-apocalyptic purgatory we get that sense with the man giving the compass to the gunslinger telling him to give it to jesus that king is building through language really alone an implication this sense that this could be the afterlife that and 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 this phrase that gets repeated throughout the story that the world has moved on but there's no heaven there's still just people uh is really really a, a powerful image that the people are still on this physical plane while this may be an afterlife tale it is a tale that still takes place in our kind of grounded reality and it's uh it's a great use of language and of pushing the reader to make inferences um, whether they're to be taken literally or figuratively that works in favor of the crafting of this story in, in a major way 
Yeah, this line in, in chapter three, right? This this prayer, I guess, Brown offers a, a blessing before they eat. He says, rain, health, expansion to the spirit. And when the gunslinger then, yeah, he asks Brown if he believes in an afterlife. This response of, I think this is it, is awesome, right? And Because the question is, for us, the reader is, is it? Right? Is that what explains these sort of weird juxtapositions? And we haven't even really gotten to the weirdest of the juxtapositions yet. So we will have to talk about that in the discussion. There's just one more thing I, I want to point out about this section, which which is that Brown asks, you know, whether or not the man in black is a sorcerer of some kind. Uh, and this this is a great setup because we already see this juxtaposition. We're already thinking the gunslinger is the good guy uh, because he's the protagonist. Um, and the gunslinger is very wary of other people that may have interacted with the man in black. And we'll learn shortly why that is the case as we get deeper into this novella um, and and thinks maybe even Brown has been somehow touched by the man in black. But Brown seems almost like a, a monkish type of figure that's wary of the man in black or the type of magic he might peddle. So it's just through these small steps in dialogue, in character interaction, and the way that King gives us to perceive these characters that we are told who to root for, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. And he's relying on a sort of normative ethic that, you know, Brown is generous, he's charitable, he's hospitable. So his wariness of the man in black informs our own wariness, though he did accept the man in black's company. He helps even the people that we're meant to think of as evil. And, of course, in you know classic Western tropes, anybody who wears all black is evil. So that's another <laughs> uh, that's another hint that King is giving us. But when we get to Toll, uh, which we will in a little bit, King does a lot to ask us who is the good guy and who is the bad guy here. Uh, though he's building in ways to make us think the gunslinger is. The hero, because he's the protagonist, and the man in black is the villain because he's being pursued by the protagonist. Yeah, hospitality seems to be Brown's big thing here, right? And there's something kind of of a Greek mythological character to to Brown. I know you said hermit, and I think or monk, I think maybe you said, and I think that's right. I mean, there's definitely a sense of asceticism to him as well. I mean, the fact that he's younger than would be expected. Maybe there's this sense that he just doesn't want to live near other people. And uh, uh, once we get to see Toll, I'm going to say who who could blame him? I would rather right. live out <laughs> on the edge of the desert by myself as well. But hospitality, right? He's just kind of this this loner. This this hermit in the wilderness who's there really to provide hospitality to to heroes. So there's this real mythological sense to him. Well, we've said uh, you know we've paused here to talk about chapter two, but we've also said just about everything that we need to say about chapter three. I think also other than that, we should add that the mule that the gunslinger has brought with him that's been carrying some of his stuff uh, has died, and uh, Zoltan, the Raven Zoltan, uh, has eaten his eyes. The, the mule's going to come back later in some uh, some significant ways, but. Uh, uh, I think we should move on to chapter four now. It is time for dinner, where the corn is tough and the beans are like bullets. Zoltan the Raven says, lead us not into temptation from the Lord's Prayer. And now the the gunslinger begins to think that maybe this is all a bit too surreal, right? That maybe this is an illusion or an enchantment, uh, that he's fallen under some spell of the man in black, that maybe even he's trying to tell him something. The man in black is trying to tell him something in some symbolic way. But... 
what's really going on here is that the gunslinger has been expecting to be asked questions about who he is and where he's been, but those questions just don't come. Brown is pretty laconic here. And so the gunslinger is uneasy. In fact, he actually wants to answer those questions. He has a story to tell about what happened in Toll, and he does want to tell it. And he starts to do this on his own, but then he just can't even excuses himself to go use the latrine at that point. Uh, uh, this is, I guess, the surreal Western equivalent of splashing water on your face, right? That's what we would get <laughs> if this were a, a movie. Uh, but then Brown says, you won't feel right about it unless I invite you. And so I do. Will you tell me about Tall? And uh, that's where we're going to go next. King has a real fascination with normal bodily functions. I think he thinks <laughs> it, it kind of grounds and humanizes his characters. It's It's one of my major quibbles with reading King or maybe just outright fully enjoying him as a writer, uh, though I really do. I don't want people to get confused here. Um, that w- one one of the things, and we'll see this in a little bit, that just takes me out of a King story is his focus on the functions of the human body. Uh, and, and whether that's being played for disgust or for uh, grounding and humanity kind of switches. So it has this real inconsistent feel for me. Um, but this works here in this story at this point, because of course, one way to water the crops is if you drink water, you should go to the bathroom on the crops. There's just, there's not enough water. And so it emphasizes the kind of man versus nature uh, aspect of this story that we're that we're already so deep in uh, that is kind of the main conflict of the story. Yeah, we've all read Dune, so we know we know it would be rude not to pee on the on the, <laughs> on the court. And, and in this section, and in chapter four, as we see the gunslinger struggling with the thought that brown might be an illusion that all of this is another trap set by the man in black he refers to the man in black as god but not god you know he's evil he raised somebody from the dead who who shouldn't have been and then he he thinks the gunslinger thinks that the only contingency he had not learned how to bear was the possibility of his own madness and, and this could speak to what we saw earlier of uh you you're arguing, Glenn, that the calf is a kind of training that certainly reading through this story and seeing lines like this in rereading could indicate that calf is a kind of training you go through. It's a, it's a contingency or a possibility that you learn to deal with or bear. My reading is still my reading, but I think this statement supports both readings. Maybe I don't know who knows. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's really fascinating I really enjoy seeing how the gunslinger is struggling with his own madness. And this is, again, this sense of cosmic horror, cosmic dread that we saw in the end of chapter one, where the confrontation with the indifference of the machinations of the universe to this little morality play that's taking place on earth the the endless confrontation of that reality is beginning to drain the gunslinger of his sanity on some level and he too has been alone for a really long time i mean he is the lone gunslinger right the lone hero the lone cowboy in this western but that's got to take a toll on a while and in fact i think we're going to see some of that in the the flashback that we're about to to get uh in chapter five and and really chapter five is the first of uh, many chapters it's the first of 13 chapters about 
Toll. It is the start of a story within the story, though that story within the story is also, I think, the, the, the core, really, of what's going on here. What we're about to learn is that this these first four chapters is all prologue and, and that we're getting a, a nested story that we're going to kind of fall into and then really have to claw our way out of. <laughs> right. The the first four chapters here have been a frame, and then the last three chapters are going to return to that frame. But it is really this story within the story. The the, the horror at all really is the core story of the, the gunslinger. And this first chapter about that, chapter five, this is another long chapter here. The story begins with the gunslinger's arrival at all with his new mule that he'd purchased in the previous town. The, the mule we know just died. Uh, as he nears the town, he can hear the honky-tonk piano in the saloon playing Hey Jude. So, you know, definitely some more surrealism here. And King gives us a really brilliant description of the area around Tall. I'm just going to read this. The forest had been gone long now, replaced by the monotonous flat country. Endless, desolate fields gone to Timothy and low shrubs. Shacks, eerie, deserted estates, guarded by brooding, shadowed mansions where demons undeniably walked. Leering, empty shanties where the people had either moved on or had been moved along. An occasional dweller's hovel, given away by a single flickering point of light in the dark, or by sullen, inbred clans toiling silently in the fields by day. And I'd say all of that is just one sentence. There's a lot of semicolons and colons, too, but it is just one sentence. It's a great technique. I love that passage. And when he gets to town, the, the gunslinger needs to board his mule, but the, the hostler and his workers, I think these might be his sons, maybe, uh, they are icy to this newcomer. He pays them with a gold coin, which is clearly way too much. Uh, they can't provide any change, but the gunslinger doesn't need any. This is uh, something that's going to happen again. This is going to be kind of a recurring motif for the, the gunslinger. And while the hustler takes the money, he also says that it's blood money. And none of them will talk to the gunslinger when he asks about the town, though eventually one of them does suggest that he could get a burger at the uh, Honky Tonk Saloon, which is called <laughs> Shebs. <laughs> and Shebs is exactly as we've been told to imagine it by every single Western that we've ever seen. And when the gunslinger walks in, everyone stops talking or, or you know, whatever they're doing and just looks at him. Uh, everyone except the piano player, that is. At the bar, he orders three hamburgers and a beer, and uh, one hamburger in this world would be an extravagance for most people, but he's got his gold coins. While he is sitting there waiting for his burgers, one of the locals tries to sneak up on him with a knife, but the gunslinger sees him in the mirror and just quietly says, go sit down, and he says that without even turning around. And the man obeys uh, like like a dog, that's the, the simile that King uses here. But once the gunslinger is eating his burgers and slurping down his beer, he is way less attentive, and the, the next man makes it all the way. But this man doesn't have a knife. Uh, he just slaps a hand on the gunslinger's shoulder, and he's an old man. Uh, he'd been asleep at the table by the door a moment ago when the gunslinger came in, uh, and this old man smells of the devil grass, uh, which it turns out is something that people smoke as a drug. But this old man is chewing it, which is shocking to the gunslinger. And what's more, he's a dead man. I uh, should have been dead a year ago. And the gunslinger senses the man in black here. Uh, that's going to be interesting to talk about how King conveys that information to us. There's uh, some narrative technique here that's really interesting. Uh, and look, this old man is a harmless junkie. Uh, he just wants to ask the new guy, who clearly has a lot of money, if he can get a gold coin as a type of charity. Uh, but the thing is that when he asks the gunslinger this, he doesn't do so in the language that everyone is speaking in toll. He does this in the high speech. And this is the first mention that we get of the high speech here in the in the story. And this is even more shocking than the fact that he's chewing the devil grass. And let's just read what King writes here. The high speech. 
For a moment, his mind refused to track it. It had been years. God, centuries, millenniums. There was no more high speech. He was the last, the last gunslinger. The others were... And yeah, that, that sentence doesn't end. As much as we might like it to, it does not end. Uh, it's a great world-building tease. And so the gunslinger gives the old man a coin. The old man's pretty happy about it. He really just wants to go back to his table and, and look at it, I guess. But this interaction freaks out the rest of the patrons, and they all leave, including the piano player now. And, and it turns out the piano player is Sheb, and, and I guess maybe he owns the place if the place is called Sheb's. Uh, but it just leaves the, the gunslinger and the bartender, who's a, a woman with a scar on her face. She's upset that he's driven off the, the customers, but he just wants to ask about the man in black. Evidently, she does know something, but she's not going to give her information away for free. And what she wants isn't money. She's not interested in these gold coins. Uh, what she wants is to have sex with the gunslinger. Yeah, and he's able to intuit this as well. Like, this is a kind of normal interaction, and, and it's very strange. Uh, this kind of gigolo persona of the gunslinger really, of the gunslinger really strikes me as odd. And, and this is part of what I mean is King working out the details of the characters he's writing it. This first story feels a lot like discovery writing because I don't think this sort of thing really comes up, uh, if I recall correctly, that much later in other novels. King, in this novella in particular, the first one the first one he wrote is super engaged with subverting Western tropes uh, and romantic hero tropes. And and this is the first sense we get of that. Uh, and, and this whole, you know, section, uh, the horror of Toll, really is disturbing and really does a lot to undercut, as we'll see, the view of the chivalric hero uh, or the gunslinger as the chivalric hero. And I think this is the first hint we get that, King is playing that sort of game. In that paragraph you read, the, the description of Tall, which is such a good, such a good paragraph, such a good bit of world building. King uses this phrase "inbred clan," and we're going to discover and hopefully not belabor the fact that this 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 is a reference to the the hostler and his family, uh, and it's uh, not not great. I mean, there's just a lot of disgust. <laughs> I think with that the gunslinger has that the reader has for the people in this town. And because this is a nested story, even though it still remains in, in third person, we're meant to imagine that the gunslinger is telling this story or building this world for Brown. So we are maybe not in this um, objective space or entirely objective space of narrative There is some subjectivity here that I, I wonder, Glenn, if you thought we were supposed to in the gunslinger's maybe subjective encounter of Tall or subjective sense of the town, or if you think that the narrative is meant to be still grounded in, a, in an objective uh, story. That is a great question. I have that question for you as well. We're, we're going to see, I think it's two more chapters. We'll see it in this recap episode, a kind of shift actually uh, from one chapter to the other in which, uh, I guess, a shift in in the way that these chapters are being narrated, the way that this story within the story is being narrated. I'm definitely looking forward to really tackling this in the discussion when we talk about craft and, and see if that, that shift works or not. I, I also like that you pointed out the focus of currency use in this chapter. To me, this is another great world building technique that King is engaging with. The fact that the gunslinger only has these gold coins indicates to me 
that there are places that the gunslinger has come from where this is the normal sort of coinage. Though we see silver coins show up in a little bit. The bartender, Ali, asks for five bucks for the burgers and beer, and all the gunslinger has is gold coin, uh, which there's no change for, which makes it almost worthless in a town like this. You know, what What could they use the gold coin for? And it just speaks to this idea, especially when you combine it with this idea notion of high speech that there are better places and better times that the gunslinger has come from and all of this is built in really through king asking the reader to make these inferences and i and i love the way that he does world building in this chapter well and he's given away three of these gold coins in like five minutes too so i, I don't know he might be doing some inflation right he's driving some inflation in this town <laughs> as well uh, i did not think i'm actually surprised that i did not think but i did not think about the economics of tall or really whatever the world around tall is right what where does currency come from what's the authority for currency are there banks like where you know how does how does all of that work uh, if we continue on with the gunslinger uh, novel then uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to track that yeah, I think we'll see King getting away from some of these ideas. This is so clearly a first story, as I've said dozens of times maybe so far in this episode. And I'm really looking forward again in the discussion to talk about this maybe as a piece of, of discovery writing. But another thing I love about this is that we have four chapters that are a prologue to a nested story. And then one chapter that's also a prologue to another nested story, another frame. Uh, and I just think it's really funny that we're kind of digging our ways deeper into this, uh, into this novella. I think it's kind of a great structure for it and keeps the pace really quick, even though this is a long story. Right. We should keep in mind that all of this, whether it's actually being narrated this way on the page or not, all of this is a story that the gunslinger is telling to Brown while they are having a dinner of corn and beans uh, in his hut and the, the border uh, with the raven Zoltan. And uh, I also love that you point out the way that King is subverting some of our expectations of the, the cowboy, the, the white hat cowboy as as a, a hero. It is hard to imagine John Wayne walking into a bar and... Uh, pumping the uh, bar keep uh, the barmaid for information by having sex with her. But that is indeed what the gunslinger is going to do, though uh, the sexual encounter actually happens in the space between chapters five and chapter six. So what we are going to get now is the story of the old man who somehow knows the high speech. And uh, we're going to get this as a bit of pillow talk. The story is pretty simple. The old man's name is Nort, and he used to operate a honey wagon in town. But then he became a weed junkie. He became emaciated. His clothes began to tear and rot off of him, but not his boots, which are engineer boots. And the, the kids and the dogs of the town would even harass him. They would just kind of follow him around. One day, Nort was walking on the boardwalk, coming to the saloon to listen to Sheb play the piano when he died. And he, he just vomited up some black blood and collapsed. This is all very interesting. But, uh, of course, what the gunslinger really wants to know about is the man in black. And the, the woman, uh, Allie, the bartender, is reluctant to go on, but she will. But that is actually going to be in the next chapter. And uh, King gives us some interesting details here. There's uh, even a mention of Halloween in this chapter, but I'm, I'm going to let Brandon talk about those details. I have this whole paragraph almost under entirely underlined where she's describing the town and uh, Halloween, children carving pumpkins. 
Uh, and it's strange to me that there are pumpkins. We, we do get like an odd Children of the Corn reference, which is another King novella or short story at the end or near the end of this whole horror at Tall, uh, where children are like burning corn in the middle of the street. Uh, this is really King's interest in like small town cult rituals and how strange they might look to the outside uh, <laughs> on full display. Uh, but what really interested me about this paragraph and what I really want to talk about is what I brought up earlier with regard to King's uh, fascination with disgust as a as a form of horror or King's use of disgust as a form of horror. And I actually want to read the section of this paragraph that talks about and describes Nort's death, the old man of 35. Uh, this is what she says. He, the paragraph starts with, he died right in front of this place. And then it continues. You could smell the dirt and the rot and the weed. It was running down of the corners of his mouth like green blood. I think he meant to come in and listen to Sheb play the piano. And right in front, he stopped and cocked his head. I could see him. And I thought he heard a coach, although there was none due. Then he puked, and it was black and full of blood. It went right through that grin like sewer water through a grate. The stink was enough to make you want to run mad. He raised up his arms and just threw over. That was all. He died with that grin on his face and his own vomit. And it's really the imagery that King is using that kind of heightens the disgust. The green, the idea of the, the weed spittle running out of the corners of his mouth like green blood the throw up coming through his teeth like sewer water through a grate uh the stench of it it's it's just so rooted in disgust as horror instead of you know like the loss of life as horror or the horror of seeing somebody die in front of you and this to me is a real hallmark of king's writing and it's here in a very early story in his career I do not at all know the, the history of body horror. It, it's not something I enjoy at all. In fact, it's something I dislike pretty pretty intensely. And I so I don't so I have no idea if if, if King is really at the the origin of this. But this is something I associate with maybe the late seventies and and the nineteen. 80s. And this all really reads like body horror to me, this sort of grotesquery, this disgust at our bodily functions. Yeah, and I and I do think as I said before, there's two modes that King writes in with regards to body. One is that kind of grounding his characters as human beings. Uh, you don't read many novels where characters go to the bathroom. And that's a part of the story, uh, whether it's you know important to the story or not. Or people are always like spitting or chewing or eating food. Um, and then there's the other side that King uses that I just read, where it's the disgust the the building of disgust around the body um and the fear of the body and and disgust is really this notion where like what is what should be on the inside is now on the outside so you know body horror is really caught up in this uh, idea as well um but i think it's it's a major aspect of king's horror writing especially in this you know 80s 90s part of his career 
Well, we are certainly not done getting that here in this uh, in this story. Uh, let's move on to, to chapter seven, which is the the longest chapter in the whole story. And 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 I want to do and I do want to just make a couple notes here, just a couple reminders about the sort of layers of narrative that we are in. Right, so uh, we are inside the the story within the story, which is the gunslinger telling this story to to Brown. But now we're getting Allie, the the bartender, telling a story to the the gunslinger. So we are with a story within the story within the story. And while the, the story of Nort and this story, right, the, the story of the, the man in black's time in Tall is what this is going to turn out to be, these are both narrated by Ali. King drops that idea in the actual telling of the man in black episode here in chapter seven, right? So chapter six was direct speech. It was Ali talking. And now that is gone. Now we're just back to a kind of omniscient or at least detached third person narrator for this story that to me was a really interesting actually maybe kind of a jarring choice here but you know we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in the craft section of our discussion for sure but i wanted to point out that this is where that happens all right so it is the same day that nort died it's that afternoon nort is laid out on two tables in the saloon this is uh, awake the man in black breezes into town, and we get some description of him. He's got a black hood and cassock, and uh, although he's not a priest or a monk, he looks like he could be. This is a detail about him that I really, really loved. I really enjoyed that touch. And this is actually where we learned that the bartender's name is Alice, though she goes by Allie. The man in black orders a whiskey, a good whiskey in particular. Allie pours him a glass of star, which is genuinely the good stuff. Uh, this is another great world-building detail. It made me nostalgic for the day. When I had to make a new uh, uh, nerd-themed cocktail menu every week, I really missed the chance to do a uh, Stephen King menu for my grad school speakeasy. But uh, I don't know; <laughs> I'll have to make up for that someday. Uh, but more important, though, uh, is that the the man in black pays for the drink uh, and another drink as well with a silver coin, right? And the same deal here with the gold coin, right? There's no change available. This is too much, but there's no change. Uh, but I think it really matters that the man in black is using the currency that Judas was paid in. And I, th- I think that's a distinction that King is trying to emphasize here, the silver versus the gold. Uh, the man in black is unsettling, but he's also magnetic at the same time. His eyes don't seem to have any color. Then they are blue. Uh, he also just seems to know things that he shouldn't know, And he laughs once, sitting at the bar, and everyone in the saloon stops and looks at him. They're just enthralled. And now he goes to work. I'll show you a wonder, he shouts at them. Uh, And here's what King writes then. The storm was beginning. Shadows followed each other, rising and falling on the white cyclorama of the sky. And I have to say, that is a a great moody touch here. And as the man in black approaches Nort's body, the people have ecstatic reactions. Uh, Some of them flee. Others are are laughing and cackling. I think Allie is maybe actually masturbating behind the bar, though maybe you read that uh, that a little bit differently than I did, Brandon. I did not. No, she absolutely is. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I just wanted that to not be true. That's absolutely the case. Yeah, the man in black here is, is a strange sort of catalyst for people's desires and and. King has already kind of built in this sense that, in fact, it's a big part of Allie's character that she's concerned she's aging out of her own sexuality. And I think the Man in Black is is a, a catalyst for this fear in some way and desire. 
we're going to catch her bemoaning the intense level of lust she feels, not just for the man in black, but in general uh, throughout the throughout the, the the story. And it's it's I guess the driving thing of Allie's character here uh, as as we get to know her. Well, while everyone is having a variety of ecstatic <laughs> reactions, maybe we'll say uh, the man in black resurrects Norton. He brings him back with he brings him back from the the dead. And it begins with spit. It begins with saliva that the man in black spits onto Nort's nose, and his his face begins to draw in moisture again. And the, the man in black does some sort of uh, weird fiction gymnastics routine over Nord's body a few times, I guess. Uh, and then the, the body trembles and twitches and vibrates. And Nord is alive. And, and now everyone flees, including Allie, who, who lives upstairs. And later she comes down again and she finds Nord there in the, the bar. He's gone out, he's gotten some weed, and now he just greets her. Hello, Allie. I've been touched by God, he says. I ain't going to die no more. He said so. It was a promise. And he goes on to say that he really wishes he could stop using the weed, but he just can't. Of course, God could have taken that desire away from him, right, when he brought him back to life, but he didn't. And Nort wants to be clear that he's not complaining because he knows that God might strike him dead for complaining about that. Uh, And at first, people don't come back to the saloon, but just two days later, life is back to normal in the town. But Allie does not forget the horror of this wonder that the man in black performed. Yeah, this is a, a great chapter, also full of that sort of disgust, that sense of disgust with, with spit here, with the human body. Uh, and and th- this use of spit is a kind of perverse version of the miracle that Jesus performed to heal blindness. And the resurrection here in this story that the man in black performs doesn't actually heal Nort. It just brings him back in the exact state he was in before he died. And if, as some theologians say, miracles are actions that point to the one making them, this certainly bodes poorly for the man in black. It kind of makes him a a kind of villain. Even in bringing Nort back, the man in black notes that a little earlier that death excites the rest of the dwellers. You know, they were excited that, that Nort had died because Nort got to die and they're still alive. So, there's this sense that the man in black is almost punishing Nort with this miracle more than letting him rest in peace. And it's a, it's a gr- another great example of the way that King is pushing the reader to understand the villainy of this character through inferences and through careful use of language and dialogue. And I, I just think it's it's wonderful. But but even in bringing Nort back, the, the man in black notes that death excites the rest of the dwellers of Tall because Nort got to die and they're still alive. So this is almost like a punishment that the man in black is giving to Nort rather than a real miracle. It's a, it's a dark miracle. It's a perversion of a miracle. And it's another great example of the way that King is using, uh, uh, is really pushing the reader to understand the man in black as a villain through these kind of inferences and dialogue choices and language. And I think it's great. I, I also want to point out that there are just two literary references, oblique ones that we get in this section as well uh, in this chapter. One, they're both kind of our world references. One in particular is the man in black in this chapter references the heart of darkness by saying, Mr. Nort, he dead, uh, which is kind of a famous line from Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And I think Heart of Darkness has to be on King's mind in this collection of gunslinger stories, at least this kind of progression through levels of uh, evil, of, of human 
evil, of perversion, of people making the world worse through their selfish choices and not and the gunslinger not really being able to make everything or anything right again. Uh, so that's great that the man in black is using this, but there's also kind of even an oblique reference to the WB Yeats poem, the second coming in this section. And this is what King writes. He says, things had stretched apart. There was no glue at the center of things anymore. And this is Allie thinking about, uh, just the, the sad times of the world she lives in, her being old or getting older and worrying about that. Of course, that refer, must refer to things fall apart. The center can, cannot hold. Uh, the falcon cannot hear the falconer from the second coming. So I, I just like the way that King is using literary references and getting us thinking about the kind of dark world energy, apocalyptic energy in this that is loaded into this text. And although this book was not published until well after King had already established himself as a, a superstar writer, uh, we know that this is a story that he wrote uh, originally, or at least started working on, or wrote a version of anyway, when he was in college. And I think one of the things we can see here is uh, what was on the syllabus of the classes he was taking <laughs> in college, right? He clearly was taking a, uh, a, a 19th century uh, English language poetry class, right? Then we've got uh, we've got Child Roland and we've got Yeats here, and uh, just all wrapped up in this in this story. Exactly. And uh, about Nords, yes, absolutely, right? This is not a good thing that the Man in Black has done for him. And if uh, if there were ever to be a musical episode of this story, right, Nort would end up at some point having to sing a song to uh, the Man in Black about how he was actually in heaven and it was kind of a jerk move to, to pull him out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just needed him here for this world to forget about the afterlife. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's get on to chapter eight here, which is the last chapter that we're going to do, and it's, it's pretty short. Uh, and this brings us back to the, the frame of the, the pillow talk, that we're still one one level down from the ultimate frame of the story. So when Ellie asks him, the, the gunslinger says that he'll probably leave tomorrow. Uh, he thinks that the man in black has left a trap for him here in Tall. And the chapter ends in the head of Ellie, who thinks of the gunslinger as something out of a fairy tale or a myth, the last of his breed in a world that is writing the last page of its book. Uh, this is a great line, though that was an interesting perspective shift there but uh uh that's where chapter eight ends and so that's where we're going to leave things for this episode yeah the gunslinger is truly the last uh, of the time lords though he has no companions <laughs> uh, who go who he goes on the journey with i do like the the return of this idea that the gunslinger is really just an artifact of of a of an old world of the past world i do have one note on the text here that in the original magazine of fantasy and science fiction this is one of the few changes in the story. There are almost none, though the edition we have uh, that we're reading out of has a bunch of uh, typos, which surprised me. But Ali here in in talking to the gunslinger about rolling a cigarette in the bed says uh, to keep the crumbs off the sheets, basically. She uses the word crumbs in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And in this edition, she says tobacco dandruff, which is what's in kind of all the future editions. So uh, that's a strange sort of editorial choice to me or revision choice that that King made uh, between the first edition and this one. I don't think it really makes that big of a difference, though crumbs may have been too vague. And that's why he changed it. I'm not sure. Yeah. And and before we close out the episode here, I, I just think that 
we're now getting to what this story is actually about, which is uh, a trap, I guess. Is this whole novella really about the the trap that the man in black left for the gunslinger? And if so, you know, if the gunslinger leaving town will get him out of the snare left to him by the man in black, why doesn't he? And this is a big question that is going to carry us through the end of the story uh, that is just being set up now. What does the man in black know about the gunslinger, about his character, about his person, about his being, that he knows the gunslinger is going to be sojourning in this town for longer than he should? Uh, and, And it sets up a strange man versus himself conflict here where the gunslinger knows he should leave but can't and all of that is going to be roughly explored in the second half of this novella so on that note that's going to do it for this episode i'm brandon buddha and i'm glenn mcdorman you can find us and all of our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com let us know what you thought of our coverage of the first half of the gunslinger uh you can Talk to us about it on our Clay Temple Media forum at claytemplemedia.com or on our new subreddit, which is Clay Temple Media. And a final reminder that our social media contest is still going on. It will be over by the time our next episode is out. So if you have not taken advantage of that yet to, to get your name in the, the hat for the chance to win a uh, a free episode commission of your own or the chance to nominate some stories to our bi-monthly ballots, uh, do so now and let us know. And we really hope you will. This is a, a huge help to us. Uh, also, a huge help to us is supporting us on Patreon. If you'd like to do that to get access to dozens and dozens of bonus episodes we have up there you can join us at patreon.com slash clay temple media so next time we'll be back to finish recapping this story finish recapping the gunslinger until then we greet you and say farewell 